uh, three guys were having coffee. Uh, to be more specific, um, three old guys were having coffee. And as they were having coffee, they uh, started talking about the fact they were concerned about something. They were all concerned about the same thing. They were concerned that they were losing their memories. And uh, as they were discussing this, they, uh, they got so concerned, they decided they were going to go in and see a doctor about it. So they went down to see the doctor to get a memory test. And uh, they got in with the doctor, and the doctor said, all right, well, let's, let's start this way. He said to the first guy, he said, uh, what, what, uh, what's three times three? And the guy said, 274. He said, all right. He, he, second guy, he says, uh, same question, what's three times three? And the guy says, Tuesday. He said, okay. Third guy, same question, what's three times three? And the guy says, nine. He said, very good. He said, now how'd you come up with that? He said, I subtracted Tuesday from 274. <laughs> We're all getting older. All of us. If you're in your 70s, you're aware that you're getting older. I mean, you can't believe you're in your 70s. But if you're in your 20s, you're getting older. We're all getting older. Nobody in here is getting any younger. Um, if you've been with us in Proverbs, you know that Proverbs is a book of wisdom. Wisdom that's being passed on from an old guy to a young guy. The old guy is the father. The young guy is the son. That's, that's how it's supposed to work. Uh, uh, wisdom is made available to us in the scripture. But there is a prerequisite for getting wisdom. Uh, in order to get wisdom, there has to be something in your life be before you can take advantage of the wisdom that would be in the word of God or the wisdom that would come from someone you know who was older. Um, years ago, I was speaking at a Christmas conference for Campus Crusade for Christ up in Denver, and they had uh, students from uh, the Colorado schools and University of Nebraska and Kansas, Kansas State, that whole region. Uh, they were at this Christmas conference. And I was, uh, j just prior to getting up, they were gonna start the next session. Uh, probably five girls from, they introduced themselves to me. They're all seniors at the University of Nebraska. They said, hey, we have a question we'd like to ask you. Just real quick, we know you're gonna get started here in a minute. But we hope to be married one day, and if they're would be just one trait that we should look for in a husband what would it be and I didn't have much time so I said money <laughs> now you know I didn't say that uh, I said if you if you just one trait if there's just one trait you could look for look for a guy who's teachable if you find a guy who's teachable he's gonna be just fine because you see if he's teachable he can mature if he's teachable he can gain wisdom if if he's teachable uh he will listen to those who have wisdom if he's teachable he'll listen to you because as you're your wife you have a different perspective and you see things from a different angle and he won't be threatened and he'll be willing to listen to what you say so if if there's one trait that has to be there look for a guy who's teachable uh if if a guy isn't teachable and it doesn't matter if he's 15 or if he's 35 or if he's 85. If a guy isn't teachable, he can't, uh, he can't find wisdom. In, in, or, in order to have wisdom, you must be open to wisdom. 
there, there has to be a willingness to learn. Uh, oftentimes, um, and this goes part and parcel with being young, uh, young guys don't want anybody to tell them what to do. Young guys think they know, and young guys think they can figure it out on their own. It is the wise young man uh, who is teachable and is willing to listen to those who are further down the trail than he is. The job of a father, fathers are 20, 25, 30, 35 years further down the road than their sons. Uh, Sons can benefit greatly from the wisdom of a father. That's what Proverbs is all about. Now, in past weeks, we have been looking at a father teaching his son about uh, wisdom when it comes to finances, uh, very practical matters. Uh, Before that, he talked to him about adultery. That'll come up again because the sexual drive is so strong in the life uh, of of men, and they need to know how to handle it. Uh, Tonight, the section that we deal with, the father is talking to his son and attempting to impart wisdom. uh, And really, this would be wisdom in regard to people, just people in general. When we were young, we, we tend to think the best of people. When you're young, Uh, you probably haven't been burned by somebody. When you're young, you probably haven't been betrayed. When you're young, you probably haven't been taken advantage of. When you're young, uh, you probably haven't had someone who seemed to be credible take you in and then take advantage of you. When you're older, those things have happened. And, And so a father can pass on wisdom about certain kinds of people in in order to equip and prepare his son for what inevitably he's going to face uh, in life. Uh, In Proverbs 6, beginning with verse 12, he is preparing his son to deal with a particular kind of individual that he will come across as he walks down the trail of life. Uh, uh, This guy could be called a lot of things. He could be called a troublemaker. He could be called a con man. He could be called, well, in, in Proverbs 6, 12, he's called a worthless man. Let's read the text, 12, 13, 14, and 15. A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, uh, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his finger, uh, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. Therefore, uh, his calamity will come suddenly, instantly he will be broken, and there will be no healing. Uh, this, this is the kind of guy that you want to avoid. Uh, guys like this, oftentimes when you're young, at first glimpse, seem to be credible and seem to be fine. Um, It's interesting to me in verse 12 when it says a worthless person. Uh, That term worthless literally means of Belial. Uh, That term Belial is used in the New Testament uh, as a name for Satan. Uh, There's nobody in history more worthless and more wicked than Satan. But there are those uh, who follow his example. And the son is being warned here 
that there are these kind of individuals that are walking around and you're going to encounter them and when you do you want to have your guard up um i i was i was thinking back to when i was a rookie pastor and uh i had a guy make an appointment i didn't know this guy but uh he signed up i i had an afternoon where i did counseling and it was first come first serve well i i didn't know who this guy was but he showed up and he quickly introduced himself very warm very gregarious very outgoing very winsome one of those guys that just had uh he had some magnetism about him very very uh very smooth not overbearing not inappropriate just um very together very confident and uh so he introduced himself and he said now i don't believe I, we haven't had the pleasure of meeting and you know that uh, and he told me who his wife was now i knew his wife because she was a part of the church and you know i knew that he had three daughters i'd never seen this guy before i, I we were talking and i'm you know all right where are we going here what's what's the issue well before long it, it, it turned out he had seen a copy of the church bulletin he'd never been to church he wouldn't go to church but he had seen a copy of the church bulletin and we were in the middle of uh, uh, building a building and he saw the amount of money that we had in the building fund and he had come in because he was wondering if uh, if we could write a check to him for a short-term loan for ten thousand dollars oh yeah and uh, I mean I, I tried real hard not to laugh but I wasn't entirely successful uh, and I laughed and I said well you'll have to excuse me but uh, the reason I'm laughing is there's just no way that could happen I couldn't do it and uh, uh, as a group uh, we wouldn't do it uh, quite frankly that'd be against the law it'd be illegal but as I learned later uh, something being illegal had never stopped this guy before uh, very very smooth kind of guy if you met him if you met him here at the bible study you met him out there you'd probably hey you know you guys would probably wind up having coffee kind of guy you'd want to get to know kind of guy you'd want to spend time with kind of guy in high school that uh, would have been student body president this guy was sharp together collected calm very interested in you but there was an agenda i never saw him again until i saw his picture in the paper uh, about a year and a half later uh, he was murdered in his bed with uh, not his wife, another woman, by uh, some hitmen of a Colombian cartel because he owed them money. And uh, apparently when he was in the fix and came to see me, that's why he wanted the money. Of course, he didn't say that. Got that paid, but a year and a half they'd had enough, and he was murdered in cold blood. Uh, he was, um, the damage that he inflicted on his wife the damage that he inflicted on his children the damage he inflicted on uh, her parents I, I don't know anything about his family he was from back east somewhere and this was california but the pain and the anguish that he brought about to that family uh, this guy was worthless and this guy was wicked uh, i did his funeral service uh, his wife was there, his father-in-law and mother-in-law were there, and no one else was there. Because uh, he had wasted his life. And, and they came only out of a sense of 
duty, quite frankly. There was no love there. He had completely destroyed them. He, uh, he was worthless, and he was wicked. Um, it goes on and gives a description here. It, it says, a worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth. What's this about, this verse 13, verse 14? Who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers. You, you say, well, I did that today. Yeah, but that's not what it's talking about. Um, you know what this is talking about? This is talking about body language. This is talking about, there's a concept called ethos. Uh, what ethos is, if you take a, a course in rhetoric or in speech, if, if you're... Um, if you walk into a church as a visitor on a Sunday morning and you've never been there before, and let's say you're visiting from out of town somewhere, and whoever the pastor is, is going to preach, before he ever opens his mouth, when, when, when he comes out and you figure out who he is, what you are doing is, is that by just watching him, you are already making a determination on the validity of his message by his ethos. In other words, before he ever opens his mouth and communicates, you're sizing him up. You're figuring out if he looks credible. You're figuring out if, by, and you do this subconsciously, you're figuring out if by the way he carries himself and the way he handles himself and the way that he relates to those around him and the way that he would sing the hymns and the way, see, you're watching this guy and making a determination, is this guy believable before he ever gets up and speaks? And if you find him to be credible, it's because his gestures and his mannerisms and his personality and just his, just his being carries a sense of validity. But you have had the experience, as I have had the experience, of just watching somebody, and before they ever open their mouth or before you hear a word off their lips, by the way they handle themselves and their gestures and the way that they carry themselves, you have great questions about their credibility and about the validity of who they are. Why? Because of their body language. This past week I've been reading a biography of Clementine Churchill, um, Winston's wife, written by their youngest daughter. One of the best, so it's a biography on Winston Churchill too. But of all the biographies I've read on Churchill, this was right at the top. It, it was excellent. Uh, sometimes Winston Churchill, uh, a couple of times, he had some associates. Of course, everyone wanted to be his friend and everyone wanted a piece of this guy. Um, on several occasions, he had, uh, was cultivating friendships with some men uh, who were attempting to influence him, and his wife Clementine was not pleased. Sometimes wives, is your wife like this? Does your wife sometimes have this radar? She'll have this sense. And, and you might not necessarily pick up anything, and you might not sense anything, but maybe you're having dinner with someone and you haven't met them before, and afterwards you, you feel okay about everything, and then she'll raise a question. You know, I'd, I'd keep your eye on that guy. Your wife ever done that for you? They're, they're not always right, but oftentimes they are able to pick up certain things. On, they, they have this internal radar that's, that's really unique. Um, uh, 
That's what she did for him. Uh, perhaps your wife does that for you. And again, they don't always do it with 100% accuracy, but at least my wife, more oftentimes than not, she hits the nail on the head. Uh, because she's picking up uh, ethos and she's picking up gestures and body language and uh, the way someone looks with their eyes, the way someone handles uh, uh, gestures, the way they touch other, those kinds of things are important, aren't they? They give away, see those outward signs are, are giving away what's in the person's heart and what's in their minds. We, we all know that there are people who, uh, who con other people and who take advantage of other people. Um, that's what this is talking about. Be aware. A and these people are always around. Uh, you can have an experience with people like this in your 20s, and you can have an experience in your 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s. I'm pondering if, how I'm going to tell this here. It just popped into my mind because in recent history, I was in a, a situation where, um, let's move on to the next verse. <laughs> I was in a situation where there was a young man, not in this church, but who was in another church and dating one of the young women in the, in the group. And through some relationships, it came to my attention that this young girl was very concerned about how this guy was treating her and he had been abusive and she went to a couple of leaders in the church and they didn't believe her because they were in a Bible study with this guy and he was so winsome and he was so sincere and he had such credibility with them that they wouldn't even listen they dismissed out of hand what she had to say and I, I'm aware of this church and friends with the pastor and have done things with them in the past. And through a series of events, she came to me. And I knew some of the guys that were in the study with this young man. It came to their attention that she had some concerns and they all turned on this young girl. I mean, they were flat out mad and they were flat out angry that his character had been called into question. It turned out one evening, uh, by chance, I ran into him. There is no chance. <laughs> and uh, I didn't even know who he was, but through, I, I'm, I'm being uh, as nonspecific here as I can. You're picking that up, aren't you? By the way, this is not a true story. I'm just making this up as I go. <laughs> but uh, it, it was a true story. But. I was at an event one night with my family, and it turned that da da, and this guy's over there. I'd never met this guy, huh? It wasn't the Mavericks game, no. That was not the event. But I'm at this event, and this information continued to come to me, and this stuff was pretty serious. And it turns out this guy had had a history in several other churches in the Dallas area, getting at least one girl pregnant. Well, I find myself, I'm here, and I find out this guy's right over here. So, uh, and this had been going on for probably eight weeks. So I walked over and introduced myself to him. And uh, we just chatted for a minute. And, and uh, I said, hey, you got, you got some time to sit down? He said, sure. We sat down. So we had a brief conversation. And I basically said to him, I said, I, I want you to know uh, that I'm on to you. 
I just want you to know that. And I, I have no position in this church, but uh, I know about you, and I know what you're doing. And you've got a lot of good people conned, but there's some information because you've got a trail that's come to my attention. And here's what I want, here's what I want to tell you. Um, uh, number one, I want you to leave this gal alone. Don't ever call her again. Don't go by her house. Or I'm coming by your house. You leave her alone. Is that clear? Uh, see, he was, he, was, he was real tough with girls. But he wasn't saying much to me. I said, if you got an issue, I want to hear it right now. you got an issue with me. Because I'm telling you, you leave her alone. And here's the other thing I'm telling you. You don't date. You, I, I, don't want, I don't want to hear of you taking out any other girl in this church. Now, here's the other thing you need to know. I've already made a call to the senior pastor of this church. And I'm moving on you already. And I'm going to take you to the elder board. This isn't going to stay at the lower levels. We're going to the top. I said, I'm not going to talk behind your back. I just want you to know you, you've hurt other girls significantly. You're not going to hurt anymore. We're going to put an end to this. And we, had a, we talked a little bit more. And he... Uh, he listened to everything I said. He wasn't teachable. But he was smart enough not to contend with me. He was friendly. He was, no, he, he was, and, and I don't usually do, I just don't do this with guys. There was a history to this thing. And there was a proven path with this guy. He didn't contend with me. He said, well, obviously, there's nothing I can do to change your mind. I said, the thing you can do to change my mind is to, is to show by your character that this isn't true. But you're going to have a lot of work to do because of this family and this family and this family. I don't think you can do it. He said, well, I'm going to attempt to do everything I can do to honor what you're saying. The guy was smooth. He was very smooth. Uh, goes back to his group, tells them what I said. And these guys that I know, they came to me. And guess who they were mad at? They were mad at me. Because I had judged this guy. And I said to one of the guys who has four daughters, this guy's a predator. And he's got you conned. Because have you talked to this family and this family and this family? No. Well, talk to him. And find out who this guy is. And he was found out. And it all came out. And suddenly he quit going to that church and he quit going to that study and, he, and he's moved on somewhere. We don't know where. If I knew where, I'd call the pastor. He's a con man. He's wicked. And, and, and what's the other thing that it says? Wicked and what? Worthless. Ah, here's a good word. This guy's absolutely worthless. He's a predator in, in church singles groups, and he impregnates young, naive Christian women. And he quotes the scriptures. They're around, aren't they? So, do you need to talk to sons? Yes. Do you need to talk to daughters? Yes. But see, once again, it requires initiative as a father to do something like that. And sometimes we got to face these guys off. Sometimes. Now, we don't go, you know, I don't go around and do that kind of thing. I only do that maybe three or four times a week. Uh, no, you, you know I'm kidding. That's a very rare thing. But it was very serious wasn't it? And the reason I was so strong with him is I didn't want him impregnating somebody else. 
And see, he was already making moves on another girl in the group. So he just needed to know there are boundaries here, pal. And this isn't going to happen. These things are never comfortable. But they're very, very important. Uh, Some of you guys are aware of Jim Collins' book, um, Good to Great. Before he did that book, he did a book called Built to Last. And what Collins does is he does this uh, in-depth research on companies and businesses that are making a difference and being successful. He writes some really good stuff. And in, in this book, Built to Last, he has a section called Walt Disney versus Columbia Pictures. It's, um, uh, it's pretty interesting because uh, Walt Disney, and you know about his film company and all of that and what he did. It's too bad Walt is not still with us today because Disney would be a different company. But uh, uh, he was a competitor of Columbia Pictures. I'll just pick up midstream. It says, in the case of Walt Disney, it is clear that Walt brought immense personal imagination and talent to building Disney. He personally originated many of Disney's best creations, including Snow White, which was the world's first ever full-length animated film. He originated the character of Mickey Mouse, the Mickey Mouse Club, Disneyland, and Epcot Center. By any measure, he was a superb leader. But even so, in comparison to Harry Cohn, his counterpart at Columbia Pictures, uh, Walt was more, more of a leader. You know of Walt Disney. Do you know of Harry Cohn? I didn't until I read this. Uh, Harry Cohn cultivated his image as a tyrant, keeping a riding whip near his desk and occasionally cracking it for emphasis. And Columbia, as a result, had the greatest creative turnover of any major studio due largely to Cohn's methods with his employees. An observer of his funeral in 1958 commented that the 1,300 attendees had not come to bid farewell, but to make sure he was actually dead. (laughs) Now that's quite a statement. Let's make sure this sucker is dead as a doornail. That's why we're here. Not to honor this guy. Just to make sure that this guy can't breathe. That's that, that was the purpose. They, uh, uh, Collins goes on and says, we could find no evidence or any, of any concern for employees by Cone, nor could we find any evidence that he took steps to develop the long-term capabilities or distinct self-identity of Columbia Pictures as an institution. The evidence suggests that Cone cared first and foremost about becoming a movie mogul and wielding immense personal power in Hollywood. He became the first person in Hollywood to assume the titles of president and producer, the first. Why? Because titles were important to him. Uh, And he cared little or not at all about the qualities and identity of the Columbia Pictures Company that might endure beyond his lifetime. Cohn's personal purpose propelled Columbia Pictures forward for years, but such personal and egocentric ideology could not possibly guide and inspire a company at the founder's death. Upon his death, the company fell into listless disarray until it was eventually uh, sold to Coca-Cola. In contrast, Walt Disney, on the other hand, spent the day before he died in a hospital bed thinking out loud about how to best develop Disney World in Florida. When thinking about himself, he's thinking about what he's leaving behind. Uh, Walt would die, but his ability to make people happy, to bring joy to children, to create laughter and tears would not die. 
Throughout his life, Walt paid greater attention to developing his company and its capabilities than did Cone at Columbia. In the late 1920s, he paid his creative staff more than he paid himself. Hmm. In the early 1930s, he established uh, art classes for all of his animators, installed a small zoo on location to provide live creatures to help improve their ability to draw animals, invented new animation team processes such as storyboards, and continually invested in the most advanced animation technologies, etc. Et he created Disney University. All of this stuff he did, not for his own ego, not for his own, but because he cared. Because there was something he was trying to do with his life to contribute, as opposed to uh, Harry Cohn. I, I think that's classic. We showed up at the funeral not to bid farewell, but to make sure he was actually dead. What a tyrant. Uh, he was, uh, this guy Cohn, a wicked uh, and worthless man. Uh, it's interesting to me, when you look at that text very carefully, uh, it gives a description of someone who is not to be trusted by their very demeanor, by, um, by their lack of character. I gave my sons, John and Josh, uh, for Christmas, I, I gave them a new book by John MacArthur, and I can't remember the name of the book um, because I'm one of those old guys that needs to have a memory uh, thing going on. But it's, a brand, it's John's latest book, and the book is on leadership. Uh, it's basically a biography of the Apostle Paul. And uh, John has been reading it, and we were talking last night, and he, he's really excited about this book. And, and he said, you know, Dad, what MacArthur's saying in this book is, is that there are a lot of books out there on leadership, and there's a lot of books on how to be a leader, and there's a lot of seminars and all this stuff. But when you come right down to it, there is one absolutely necessary trait for being a leader, and that is character. If, if you're a leader with character, then you're a leader. If you're a leader without character, you're not a leader. You're a synthetic leader. Uh, flip over with me to the book of Acts. You see, what we're talking about in verse 12, 13, 14, and 15 is that we're talking about somebody who has gifts and skills and charisma and they're glib and they're winsome and they're quick on their feet, and they're smart, and they're intelligent, and they know how to work people, and they know how to work a room, and they present themselves well before a crowd, and uh, even on television, but they are absolutely wicked, and they're worthless because they have a complete and total absence of character. I know names are coming to your mind. I did not put those names in your mind, but one in particular is coming to your mind because we all know who he is. And I won't even refer to his wife. <laughs> but in Acts, where is Acts? New Testament? Yeah. Go towards the end of Acts. Yeah, page 130-something. Well, yeah, right. Uh, if you get to the end of Acts, Paul has uh, been you know, hit on trumped-up charges, and what he's having to do in Acts 27 is that he has, uh, he's been before King Agrippa in chapter 26, and what he does is he appeals to Caesar. So suddenly, in Acts 27, he's on his way to Rome. 
That's what's happening. He's on a ship, uh, Acts 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And they get on a ship, and they're on the Mediterranean. Uh, verse 4, we put out to sea. Uh, we're under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds are contrary. He, he's journaling here where they are. They're, they're on their way, but um, they start having some difficulty. Verse 9, when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. And he said, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Um, they had a big problem here. They were in some bad weather. They were in a major league bad storm. And um, if you look at uh, 14, it says, but before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Eurakilo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. They can't even control where they're going in the ship. I mean, this is a big time crisis. Uh, verse 18, the next day as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Now, you know what's interesting about this when you read this story recorded here in Acts 27? Who is Paul? Tell me Paul's position of authority in the Roman military. He has no position. He's a prisoner. The, the, the sucker's got handcuffs on. When you begin to see what's happening, you know what's really fascinating about this? As you read through Acts 27, as things get worse and worse, guess what leader emerges who has no military rank, no military title, no good old boy network, uh, nothing that would impress a Roman centurion. Guess who begins to emerge as a leader and who it is that they look to and follow exactly what he says? It's Paul. He had nothing with him. He had no resume. He had no books. He had no speaking schedule. He, he, had, he was a man basically in chains, but in crisis, they couldn't get over his character and his ethos and his pathos, and the fact that what he said, and how he lived, and how he faced the storm, and, and how he was fearless, and how there was a calm in the midst of great unrest. You read the rest of the story, guess who's calling the shots on this ship with over 200 people? Paul. The weakest, lowest guy on the ship is suddenly the leader. Why? Because he had character character is everything what does our culture say our, our culture says the appearance of character is everything yeah so you hire a PR agency and when you get caught you give explanations and you give rationalizations and what's leadership it's character see the guy back back in Proverbs see it's a description of of too many leaders in our culture who have the appearance of character, who want to give the appearance of integrity. What's the old line? Reputation is what people think you are. Character is what you are when no one else is around. That's character.
Let's go back to Proverbs 6. You guys still with me? Isn't it amazing how relevant the scriptures are? And is it not amazing how conned people get? I was speaking in Houston this weekend, and I made a comment during the conference about a particular leader who has already been in your mind this evening. And, uh, and then later on, I made a comment about our president and how wonderful it is to have a president who reads his Bible and prays and covets the prayers of God's people. It's not unusual for me when I speak for two or three people to get up and walk out. And because uh, they're offended by those kinds of references. The thing I would say is, if you're offended by a reference to a particular individual with no character, what does that say about your character? You better get some new friends, pal. Because you admire the wrong people and you're defending the wrong people. And you're standing in opposition to the Word of God. Not me, to the Word of God. Bad company corrupts good morals, Paul said in another place. 616. We're just trying to win friends and influence people here tonight. <laughs> this, this guy didn't like, so he sent me an email. And, uh, and it, was, it was a gracious email. He just didn't like the comments that I had made. And I thanked him for expressing his comments. I said, I stand by them. I won't change them. But I thank you for taking the time to tell me your concerns. You know, and isn't it great we live in America? Because in other countries, you can't state things. Uh, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. I mean, he was gracious in, in his concern. Not everyone is. It was a good exchange. Verse 16, this is serious stuff. It's very serious stuff. Uh, oh, oh, by the way, um, do I want to do this now? Or let, let's go to 16. It says, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Now, the list, they're going to list seven things here that, that, that God does hate. This is not an exhaustive list. It's not a comprehensive list. But it is a list. And as you go down the list, uh, it gets worse. Seven things that the Lord hates. Now, did you know that it's against the law to hate in our culture? We actually call what we call uh, the, the greatest sin that can be committed in America. Well, sometimes we call it hate crime, but it, it comes under the category of judging. The worst thing anybody can do is to judge. We don't ask, is it right or wrong? We ask, are you judging? That's where we have come. That's how far down the road that we... And if you judge, then of course you are being hateful. If, if you don't approve of a certain behavior, you're being hateful. You guys know this. You see it all the time, and you've experienced it. Uh, there are certain things God hates. Not only does he hate it, it says, yes, seven things which are an abomination to him. The word abomination in the Scripture is the strongest possible word that can be used to express the displeasure and the condemnation of God on a wicked act. He is totally against it. It's an abomination. It's unspeakable. Because God's a holy God. Did you know that God's a holy God? God, God is, uh, God has standards. God has laws. 
And, and God judges those uh, who disobey his laws. And he judges those who disobey his moral standards. He always has, and he always will. Uh, you say, well, Steve, I'm a Christian. Uh, well, great, so am I. So if, if I screw up and knowingly go against the will of God, what's he going to do? Is he going to send me to hell? No, but he's going to discipline me because I'm his son. Just as my dad would discipline me. Just as your dad, if you had a good dad, would discipline you. Just as if you're a father, you discipline your son when he crosses the line. Why? Not because you hate him, because you love him. You die for the kid, but you're trying to shape him up. You see? Interesting list. Because I, I find these very, very relevant to where we live. These are all character issues. See, there are certain, God looks at men's character. God doesn't read press releases. God doesn't listen to what they say on CNN. God knows the heart. Six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven things which are an abomination to him. And then they list them. Haughty eyes. Let's talk about that. How many of you guys this week use the word haughty in your vocabulary? Yeah, we, we don't use that. What, what, what's, what's a synonym for haughty? Proud, arrogant. Yeah. Proud, arrogant, condescending. Very good. Yeah, that, that's the sense. A very proud individual. God hates that. He hates it. Yet that, once again, is becoming a predominant characteristic of our culture. When George Washington was uh, 14 years old, he compiled um, a little journal that he kept for himself. And in this journal, he had a list of 110 rules of civility and decent behavior in company and conversation. At 14, he was concerned about this about civility, how he would treat other people as a young man. Uh, I've got a whole list of them. I won't read them all. Here's a few of them. Sleep not when others speak. Well, that's in here. I can, I can prove it to you. I'll make you a copy and email it to you. Sleep not when others speak. Sit not when others stand. Speak not when you should hold your peace. Walk not when others stop. That's just being polite. Remember the body language that we were talking about earlier in Proverbs? He says, do not puff up the cheeks. Loll not the tongue or rub the hands or beard. Thrust out the lips or bite them or keep the lips too open or too close. What he's talking about is how people pick up on certain body language. Now, we would express that differently, but you understand uh, when someone's talking to you, you don't look off in the distance. He's talking about civility. He's talking about being polite. Catch this. This is number 22. Show not yourself glad at the misfortune of another, though he were your enemy. Um, catch this, 44. When a, man does all he can, when a man does all he can, though it succeeds not well, blame not him that did it. You know what that reminds me of? There used to be something in American athletics called sportsmanship. Coaches would, would teach you how to play your position. They would teach you how to uh, run the plays. Uh, but something else that coaches would also teach you was something called sportsmanship. 
what happened to sportsmanship? There is no sportsmanship. Uh, what, what we have is uh, arrogance and pride and trash talking when someone uh, gives their best effort. Uh, you know, ho- ho- there's no hockey anymore. There may never be hockey, the way these guys are going. But uh, they, they, got a, they got this lockout thing going in hockey. One of the things I've always appreciated about hockey, you, you've seen hockey. Um, who, who was it? Jackie Mason or Rondy Dangerfield said he went to a boxing match and a hockey game broke out. <laughs> That's a pretty good line. But, you know, those guys are pretty intense and they're playing. You know, they'll duke it out and drop the gloves here and there. But you know what's really interesting in the playoffs? Stanley Cup. When it finally comes down, one team finally wins four games. As, as intense as those guys have been, they line up, and there's bitterness in defeat. They line up, and every guy shakes the hand of the guy on the other team. You know what that's called? It's called sportsmanship. Uh, they're not trash-talking. Uh, if a guy gets hurt, they're not dancing over him. They're not mocking him. They're not in his face. There, uh, there, there is a, um, there, there is a sense of this is an opponent who did his best, and they are uh, offered dignity and civility. That's the way sports used to be, but we've lost it. This arrogance. It, it's it, and it's just not sports. It's it's all over in, in our country. What does that come down to? It comes down to a lack of what? Character. God hates arrogance. He hates it. So what does Peter say? He says, humble yourself. See, arrogance, you put yourself up. Arrogance, you put yourself up on a pedestal. Uh, I was in a class about 20-some years ago that Chuck was teaching at Talbot Seminary. And uh, there are only about 15 students, young, young pastors from the West Coast. And Chuck was speaking for two days in his class on expository preaching. And I was a rookie preacher, so I, I got down there and I wanted to hear what he had to say. And uh, Chuck was, you know, insight was taken off and he was starting to get a lot of acclaim. And one of the guys asked him about that. He, and he was kind of, you know, he thought it was pretty neat. And he said, well, what's, that, what's that like, you know, to, you know, and they're kind of mentioned, they'll mention Billy Graham and they'll mention you. And I'll never forget, Chuck said to the guy, he said, hey, let me tell you something. When they put you on a pedestal, you just step right down. Just like that. They put you up, you step down. That's how you do it. And that's how Chuck's maintained his equilibrium. That's how Billy Graham maintains their equilibrium. They humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. You want to be arrogant? You want to be proud? You got two options. See, if you do that, if you do that, God will humble you. The best thing to do is to go ahead and humble yourself. Because God hates arrogance. And we've all been there, haven't we? And boy, he sure has a way of pulling the rug out from under us, doesn't he? To save our life. Here's the second thing God hates. He hates a lying tongue. This is what we might call unofficial lying. This is lying in the uh, normal course of events as you walk through life. Uh, 
God hates this. Oh, if God hates this, conversely, would not God love something else? So see, if God hates arrogance, God would then love humility. If God hates lying, then God would love what? Truth. Just, just telling the truth. What was it Mark Twain said? If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. It makes it a lot easier, guys. Why does God hate lying? Well, for a lot of reasons. His nature is truth. When, when you're a liar, you cannot be trusted. When you're a liar, you can't have a good marriage. When you're a liar, you can't be really, truly successful in uh, your chosen area of endeavor because you've got no credibility. Isn't it interesting how often arrogance and lying go together? In this book I was reading about Churchill and his wife, there was a particular military commander who was very full of himself. And Churchill observed about this very proud military leader. Churchill said, he can strut while he's sitting down. That's pretty good. He can strut while sitting in a chair. That's the arrogance. And usually with arrogance, you've got a pattern of lying. What's the next thing God hates? Hands that shed innocent blood. I'll tell you what, this is all over our country. There's a woman named Terry Schiavo in Florida if you've been following this. The only ones that will cover it are Fox News. Uh, uh, she is not in a coma. She's not a vegetable. Uh, but she is uh, brain damaged. But she's conscious, and she responds to touch. She can't communicate, but she can respond. But she has a husband who, even before this happened to her, was involved in an affair. And uh, he is the one that is petitioning has petitioned the courts for years and years so that he can pull the plug on her. Because, see, technically, they're, they're still, you know. Her parents are doing everything they can do to fight this. And Jeb Bush has filed briefs on her. But just, I think this last week, the Florida Supreme Court said it would be all right for them to pull the plug and take her life. You know what the Florida, Florida Supreme Court are? They're a bunch of killers. They're killers. Are they not? Is that too strong to say? I mean, I know it's not politically correct. But tell me what else you call that. Well, there's a good word, murderers. Yeah. But see, even that doesn't make you a little uncomfortable. But see, guys, she is innocent. She's done nothing wrong. She's a human being made in the image of God. You see, once you start aborting babies, it's just a slippery slope right down the road. Is it not? All right, here we go. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. What would God love? If he hates hands that shed innocent blood, what would God love? Hands that protect human life. That's what God would love. Uh, God also hates a heart that devises wicked plans. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. He hates that. He, he, he despises those that would think of creative ways in order to get past his truth and his word and his law. To, who will say anything, who will do anything, who will... 
He despises that. But conversely, he loves those that would have vision that God would bless them as they live their lives in accordance with his word. Is this making sense? See, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are mostly his. Whose hearts are what? Fully his. God looks at the heart. Here's something else God hates. Feet, feet that run rapidly to evil. He hates it. And they're everywhere. So what does God love? Those that run rapidly to righteousness. He loves that. God hates a false witness who utters lies. See, before we had lying, but it was unofficial. This is official lying under oath. Perjury is a crime in this country. At least it was until Clinton was president. He's a perjurer, right? Am I, what am I, a political commentator? I'm just telling you the truth. I'm, I'm just telling you history. Is that not a sad thing? It's a tragic thing. Here's what else God hates. He hates one who spreads strife among brothers, who spreads rumors, who manipulates, who gets, works behind the scenes and pits brother against brother. You know, there are church members that do this. I've been in church. Oh, yeah, man, let me tell you. I got stories. And anybody in here that's been in church has got stories about people who manipulate and gossip and turn brother against brother because they have something they want to achieve or something they want to do or they don't like what the elders are doing or they don't like what the pastor's doing. You see, God hates, he hates that. Uh, you all know about Winston Churchill. You gotta watch the clock here. You know about Winston Churchill. Prior to Churchill under Queen Victoria, there was another prime minister by the name of Benjamin Disraeli. Disraeli uh, was born a Jew he came to know Christ, and he loved Christ. His life was gloriously changed. Uh, Disraeli was brilliant. He was uh, 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 an articulate man. Uh, if he had have followed literature and writing, he could have been a world-class poet, uh, incredibly gifted. He, he, quite frankly, is the one who is responsible for the two-party system in Parliament, and, and which came over and impacted us here. He was a man of tremendous influence. Uh, in an article written by uh, David, uh, it looks like Galerntur, uh, so hard name to pronounce, I probably got it wrong. Let me just pick up midstream. Talking about Disraeli. Disraeli created the new conservative party in opposition in parliament. And while he was at it, he created the modern idea of an opposition party. Uh, Blake called him perhaps the first politi uh, the politician, the first politician systematically to uphold the doctrine that, is the, that it is the duty of the opposition to oppose. Now stay with this, because at first this doesn't sound good, but just stay with it. Indeed, he might be said by this practice to have, uh, to have established a precedent on which all subsequent opposition leaders have acted, no matter what the issue. If the government was pro, Disraeli felt obligated to be con. Now follow it. Above all, maintain the line of demarcation between, parley, between parties, he said. For it is only by maintaining the independence of party that you may 
maintain the integrity of public men and the power and influence of parliament itself. In other words, there has to be legitimate dialogue on both sides to have integrity, to discuss issues thoroughly. He believed that a party must stand for a consistent, coherent worldview, not for an incoherent parade of tactical decisions with no overarching purpose or underlying philosophy. A party in the age of expanding democracy must write its principles in bold block letters plainly and clearly. Now catch this. But he had two reservations. The Israelis saw his duty as opposition but never obstruction. Never to prevent the house from voting. Furthermore, when the nation was at war, the opposition was duty bound to support the war. Disraeli disliked the Crimean War, and he said so, but assured the House that no English general fighting abroad would face any opposition effort to depreciate his efforts and to ridicule his talents so long as he was in charge. He wasn't going to sow discord among the brethren. And God honored him. He had character. He would speak his mind. He, let's discuss both views, because that's integrity. But he would not obstruct. He might oppose. He would not obstruct. You get the sense. How relevant is that to where we are today? In a church, in a nation, in a family. Character is huge. I, I know I'm out of time. If you go back to verse 15, the man with no character... Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly, instantly he will be broken, and there will be no healing. I came across a song. My son wanted me to hear this song. It comes from a, what did I do with it? It comes from a singer by the name of Joe Nichols. I never heard of this guy in my life. Country singer. Listen carefully to Joe Nichols. Somewhere in Vietnam, a 19-year-old soldier stumbled from a barroom. And he said, I must be seeing things. That bourbon hit me like a baseball bat. In Belfast, Ireland, a little lady dropped a shovel in her garden. And she raced across her yard and asked her neighbor, Mrs. Clancy, what was that? In Memphis, Tennessee, a teacher raised the window closest to the river. And the children in her classroom sorely heard a choir sing down the street. In Washington, D.C., a private secretary's lips began to quiver. And the president just put aside some papers and rose quickly to his feet. I lay in a cheap motel in 
the arms of someone else's woman When a loud explosion rocked the room and turned the morning into night I jumped out of bed and ran into the street with hardly any clothes on And as the sky lit up my heart stood still and I could feel my face turn white All at once the clouds rolled back and there stood Jesus Christ in all his glory And I realized the saddest eyes I'd ever seen were looking straight at me I guess I was awakened by the penetrating sound of my own screaming. It didn't take me long to stumble out of bed, fall down on my knees. As tears rolled down my face, I cried, Dear God, I'm thankful I was only dreaming. If I never go to hell, Lord, it'll be because you scared it out of me. Sometimes calamity comes into our lives to scare us and to keep us from ourselves and from hell. Because God's a good God. That's how some of you guys came into the kingdom. You were scared into it. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. He's a good God, isn't he? Let's bow and we'll pray. Father, in an age that breaks our heart, and more importantly breaks your heart, we desire to be your men. Uh, we're no different than any other man on the face of the earth. We have the same propensity for pride and arrogance and for self-centeredness, and for being haughty, and, and being liars as any other man. But because of your goodness and your mercy, you have redeemed us and saved us from ourselves. And you have given us new hearts. Uh, Lord, for some of us, we had to experience a calamity before we would yield and surrender and come to you. We thank you for being so good to us that you would allow that to come into our lives and save our lives. Uh, you are our only hope. There can be no character in our lives apart from your spirit that indwells us. So Father, give us uh, tonight the courage. Give us the motivation uh, to get up in the morning and to start fresh and to follow you. We want to be men of character. Nobody else knows it. You'll know it. We want to be men who are your men, even in the dark when no one is around. That's our desire. We pray this in Jesus' name.